We're entitling this series, Jesus Reigns, Hope in the Middle of Chaos. And what we're doing is a verse-by-verse study of the second psalm. There's the rebellion of humanity, verses 1 through 3. There is the um, there is a response of God, which is verses 4 through 6. And now, starting in verse number 7, we have the rule and the reign of the Son. And there are three aspects to the rule of the Son, as prophesied in Psalm 2 and fulfilled in part in the life of Jesus. We start with verse number 7. I will declare the decree, the Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my Son, this day have I begotten thee. So as we think about the rule of the Son, we start first with the victory of of Jesus. What do we mean by the victory of Jesus? Well, we know from one of those two New Testament passages that what, at least in part, again, I'm not saying there isn't more, that there aren't some layers. And listen, that's the beauty of Bible study. If you, as a, as a believer, are still growing in your understanding of God's Word and in your desire to study the Bible, let me just tell you something. The Bible is just deep and wide. There's so much truth to be found in God's word. So we're not saying that there aren't some more layers here, but one thing we can know for sure, when we read verse number seven, part of what we're to understand this to mean is the victory that Jesus had over death through the resurrection. How do we know that? Acts 13, 33. God hath fulfilled the same unto us, their children, in that he hath raised up Jesus again, as it is also written in the second Psalm, thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. The victory of Jesus over death was, was what we, is what we see in the resurrection, the glorious truth of the resurrection. I know it's not Easter, but we're allowed to talk about the resurrection of Jesus outside of the months of March and April, right? In fact, the resurrection of Jesus is a fundamental or essential doctrine of our faith. As a believer, it ought to bring you great joy and great hope and great purpose to know that Jesus lives. He died, he shed his blood, his body was broken, and he was buried for three days, and then he rose again in power over death and over sin. First Peter 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us again unto a lively hope, by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Aren't you thankful that Jesus lives? We don't serve a dead Savior. He's not in the ground anymore. He's not in the tomb anymore. He's alive. And you know that excitement that we get? I mean, there is sort of this novelty about Easter, isn't it? And we get close to it, and we see the decorations, and maybe we'll even put up some kind of tomb-looking thing on our platforms, and we get all excited. The resurrection of Jesus, the truth that Jesus gained victory over death for you and for me is something that ought to animate your faith every single day of your life. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy, he hath begotten us again unto a lively hope. I like that word. The idea being communicated there is that our hope has some energy to it. It has some power to it. Why? Because of us? Isn't it exhausting sometimes to try to like hype yourself up? You ever have that happen? You ever had days like that? We all have days like that, right? And the wonderful thing about being a Christian is that our faith is in Jesus. Our hope is in him. I don't have to overcome death and sin. Jesus did that for me. 
right? And I can live in the light of his victory. Jesus rose again from the grave. That ought to bring you great joy. That ought to, you ought to want to go and tell people about that. We understand that the reason that Christianity spread throughout the known world in the decades following Jesus' death was because the disciples were absolutely convinced of the truthfulness of the resurrection. They believed with everything they had that Jesus had literally physically rose again from the grave. Here we are 2,000 plus years removed from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we are in this room in part because of the faith and the commitment of those who believed with all their heart, Jesus lives. Paul would later write to the Corinthian believers and say, if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we are miserable because it's, it's what our hope hinges on. It's what our faith hinges on. And I'm here to tell you that for me, what gives me great hope in the midst of all the craziness of this world is the belief, the true, deep, heartfelt belief that Jesus rose again from the grave in victory over death, that it really happened, that his disciples saw him in that glorified state and that eventually he commissioned them to go into the world, to preach the gospel, and he ascended up into heaven right in front of them, that those things are not stories, they're not myths, that they actually happened and that that's the Jesus that we serve. There is the victory of Jesus over death and over sin through the resurrection. But we don't just see in the rule of the sun the victory of Jesus. We also see this idea of the inheritance of Jesus. This is an interesting part of the passage. If we look back at Psalm 2, look at verse number 8. The Bible says, Ask of me, and I shall give thee the heathen for thine inheritance and the uttermost parts of the earth for thy possession. This is a fascinating portion of Psalm 2. Now, in my Bible, this is a Bible I've had for a long time. This is separate from the main point that we want to make tonight. But I have this question written in the margin of my Bible. I wrote it in the margin of my Bible about 14 years ago. I was sitting in a missions conference, and Dr. Don Sisk, and if you don't know who Don Sisk is, he has been faithfully serving our Lord for a really long time. And Dr. Sisk has a great heart for people to be saved. And I just remember him preaching this message from Psalm 2. And he kept asking this question, who wants the heathen? Who wants those that are unsaved? Who wants the believers, uh, the unbelievers? And his challenge to all that were present was that God says that if, if, we, if we want, he will use us to reach people with the gospel. If you want it, you can be part of that work. And that always encourages me every time I open to this portion of the passage. But if we dig a little bit deeper into what we see in the New Testament, and we see uh, the full extent of what's being said here, when you go to Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, there's a few things that Jesus said to his apostles that shine some light here. He says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Jesus says to his, apostles, his uh, followers, I have been given power and authority. <clears throat> the way that it's worded in Psalm 2 is that the Father says to the Son, if you want it, you can have it. It's all yours, right? And when Jesus stands in front of his followers before he ascends back up into heaven, what is he doing in this moment? He's claiming his inheritance. He said, all power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. And then the most remarkable thing happens. He says, would you like to be a part in my claiming 
the inheritance that my father has given to me? Do you want to go into all the world and preach the gospel? In Acts 1.8, the same wording, right? If you're familiar with Acts 1.8, when you read in Psalm 2 and verse number 8, it says, I'll give you the uttermost parts of the earth. That makes me think of Acts 1.8. And you shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. And you shall be witnesses unto me in Jerusalem and in Judea and in all Samaria and unto the uttermost parts of the earth. When we're reading in Psalm 2, in verse number 7, and fulfilled in part in the life of Jesus, he said to his followers, and he says to all of us, it all belongs to me, and I invite you to come with me to go to the uttermost parts of the world and claim what is rightfully mine. See, one day, Jesus is coming again. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And we're here to have as many people, to help as many people get on their knees before that day as we can. That's the, uh, what he's called us to, to share the gospel with as many people as we'll hear. And I wanna ask you, when it comes to this idea of being a witness for Jesus, when it comes to having a role in the spread of the gospel in the world, where are you? If you were to just rate yourself on a simple scale with one being undercover and 10 being bold and outspoken, where would you find yourself? Understand, we have a God who is loving and merciful and full of grace. And I want to encourage you with something. The the furtherance of the gospel and the work of God in this world Thank the Lord it's not dependent upon me or dependent upon you entirely. He gives us an opportunity to be a part, but his will will be done in the world, right? So your obedience and my obedience, I have the opportunity to be a part. He invites me to be a part. Does he need any of us to accomplish his purposes in the world? No, but he invites us to be a part. And what a joy it is to get to be a part. And so I want to invite you, I want to encourage you to evaluate in your own life the extent to which you are part, participating in God's work in the world. What kind of witness are you? And maybe I can just say a word of encouragement. Some of you have a family member and you've tried and you've tried and you've tried and it hasn't gone so well. You know who I'm talking about? You've tried, you've shared the gospel, you've done the best that you can and hasn't gone so well and you're discouraged, can I encourage you? Don't give up. Keep praying for that person. Keep looking for opportunities to share the gospel with that person. For some, it's the fear of how people might respond. It's the fear of, of, of um, rejection as a result of sharing your faith. God has not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Ask him to give you boldness. Ask the Holy Spirit to give you boldness and he'll give it to you. There's, the, um, <clears throat> there's what we see through the work of Jesus Christ. There's the resurrection. There's the inheritance, the opportunity that we have to be part of the work that he's doing in this world. And I wanna invite you to be part of that work. He invites you. And then the final uh, portion of this section where we think about the rule of the son is the power of Jesus. We've alluded to this a little bit, but here's where it's laid out in pretty um, compelling language. He says in verse number nine, thou shalt break them with a rod of iron. Thou shalt dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Well, the Bible tells us the reason that we say 
that what we read in Psalm 2 has been fulfilled in part in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is because here is an example of where the full fulfillment of the prophetic nature of this psalm has yet to be felt. Because one day, when Jesus comes again, the Bible says that unrighteousness will face the just and righteous judgment of God. And nothing is going to be able to stop that from happening. And the Bible describes it in this vivid way. You'll break them with a rod of iron. You'll dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Revelation 19, verses 11 through 16, describes what it will look like when Jesus comes again. And the armies of the world are united to try to stop the inevitable. The Bible says this, And I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, and he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron. And he treadeth the winepress of the, fear, of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. It is going to be a blowout. Right For any of you that are, if you're here and you're a college football fan, sometimes these first couple weeks, 80 to nothing, 72 to 3, be a depressing day, right? You've been working all summer long, and it's a royal beatdown. There's going to come a time where the rulers of the world, those that plan and plot and scheme, like it's described earlier in the psalm, those that have an illusion of power, they are going to assemble all of the might that they have. You know what? I'm, I'm talking about those things that we see on the news. And it makes us nervous. We think about the ways that people across the ocean are unstable. We get nervous. It causes us anxiety. And I'm not saying that it's unreasonable for us to feel that way because we're just finite human beings. We don't have an infinite understanding of what's going to happen. But when we read these verses, there is nobody and there is nothing that humanity can come up with that is going to be able to withstand on that day. It will be utter and complete annihilation. That will be the just and righteous judgment of God poured out on the world. That's the reason why we have to be busy sharing the gospel reaching people with the message of Christ's love because there's nothing that is going to stop what we're reading about in, Psalm, in Revelation 19 from happening. It will happen. And when we see all of the might of the world and people flaunt their power like they have some sort of control, I mentioned last week and I'll mention again this week. As we move forward as a country, we're getting close to seasons of the year and seasons of time where the play and the desire for power and the illusion of some kind of control over what happens motivates us, causes us to say things and do things, there's a place for it, right? We don't want to minimize that. But what we, what we do want to remember is that it does not matter. There is one that rises up and that puts down, and that's God. He's in control. He's the one that decides what happens. And in the end, all the might of the world 
assembled in one place for one purpose, and it will be a wipeout. But one of the things that's amazing about this part of the psalm that always just encourages me, the one analogy that he uses is that it'll be like dash in pieces like a potter's vessel. Pottery, during the time in which David would have written this, you want to talk about fragile, right? Um, my wife got, well, I mean, she buys all sorts of old stuff. You can tell her I said this. She knows I think it's crazy. We got one time, we were newly, we were only, I mean, it was just me and her, and we had, Sonny was just little, and she comes home with these, I said, you can't put anything on these plates. I mean, they're so thin and so fragile. She said, aren't they beautiful? I'm like, yeah, but I want to put food on them, you know, like, I'm afraid that the sides will break off if I just put a little bit, I mean, so, so, such, like, fine china. I'm like, I don't want fine china, right? I don't want, this makes me nervous, right, to put things on Imagine that kind of material and then think even more fragile than that, right? These kinds of clay pots that David would have been talking about, you drop it, that's it. So fragile, right? You squeeze it a little too tight, it'll break. So when he uses this analogy, think of the most powerful government, think of the strongest army, think of the most influential politician, Right? All the earthly power you can think of. And it's like, just throw it on the ground like a little pot. And it just breaks into a bunch of pieces. That's how easily it can be done. So when I think about the fact that there is a God who has that kind of power, that the most powerful armies in the world, that the most powerful governments in the world, reduced to nothing in an instant, like they were just fragile clay pots, that same God will take your life and my life in his hands and patiently mold us and make us just like a potter does with clay. Isn't it an amazing thing to think that the same God who is powerful enough to destroy all the armies of the world as if they were little clay pots has time for you, has time for me, has a desire to see you grow into the image of his son who will take the time like a potter does with clay to mold us and to make us. The same God who can destroy it all with the word of his mouth will give you and me a second and a third and a fourth and a fifth and a sixth chance because he's a God of great mercy and love. The contrast could not be more compelling. The power of God to dispatch of all the nonsense of the world and yet a loving God who's willing to take you in his hands and me in his hands and mold us and make us into what only he can mold us and make us. That's the rule of the sun. That's the power of God. Powerful enough to destroy the armies of the world. Merciful and loving enough to work in your life and work in my life. The final section of this psalm, with the rebellion of humanity, the response of God, the rule of the sun, the final section which we see here in verses 10 through 12, is the reaction of the wise. So, we're standing back. We're seeing all this unfold. Right? All the chaos that's going on around us, but it doesn't matter because I have set my king upon my holy hill. I'm in control. Nothing's going to change that. The rule and the reign of the sun. So what should smart people do when they step back and see all this? What is the right response? 
Starting in verse number 10, it says, Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing if everybody that occupied a position of earthly power and authority recognized the ultimate authority of God? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? That is not reality. Right? Not everybody that occupies a position of power and authority. But when David writes this psalm prophetically under the inspiration of the Spirit, he says, to you kings, to you rulers, to you princes, what I would do is I would recognize that your power comes underneath the umbrella of God's power and authority. Right? So his heart for all those in power was that they would recognize it. We live in a time where when it comes to people in power, and I'll use another P word, politicians, right? We've got a lot to say, and we've got a lot of opinions. But here's what I'll leave you with tonight. You ought to pray for everyone that's in power. That if they don't know Christ, that they would know Christ. You ought to pray for everyone. Because the ultimate desire of our hearts ought to be when you see someone that has power and authority in the world and they use it for the purposes of evil, you don't have to pray that the evil purposes are successful. You, can, you very much can pray. I hope they are not successful in that regard. But when you pray for those that are in power, part of what you pray ought to be, Lord, help them to come to recognize that their authority is under your authority. That's a good prayer to pray. Because David said, the reality is, that the wise thing to do, the smart thing to do for all of us, he's in control, he rules and reigns, nothing will change that. It's time to submit ourselves, acknowledge God's power and authority. Psalm 75, five and seven says, lift not up your horn on high, speak not with a stiff neck, for promotion cometh neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge, he putteth down one and setteth up another. So my dad is here. Hey, dad. He came in. He's over there. This is so random, but when I was growing up and I would hear my dad preach, he would always say, he would say, sometimes we have our, our nose so high up in the air that if it rained, we'd drown, right? <laughs> when the Bible talks about having a stiff neck, right, that's what it's talking about. When Peter wrote to the believers in the New Testament, he said, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, but think soberly and seriously. May God free us from our pride. It's easy to look around and see all of the pride in other people's lives, but it's another thing to look into our own heart and say, God, where have I lifted myself up above you and above your authority in the world? Because the wise thing to do in response to this truth that we see that Jesus rules and reigns, the wise thing to do, the smart thing to do is to acknowledge his authority, to humble ourselves in his presence. And listen, there's no shortage of angry people. There's no shortage of loud people. There's no shortage of proud people. You know what we do have a lacking of? is humble people. And for all that the world might tell us, and for how backwards it might seem, Jesus got his followers together like this and said, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. Don't get caught up 
by the world's understanding of what power is. Humble yourselves in the sight of God. Allow him to bring into your life a humility that demonstrates itself in the way you treat people, in the way you talk, in the way that you post on social media. Why? Because he is in control. And every single one of us that call ourselves followers of Jesus ought to humble ourselves in his presence and it ought to be our heart through the way we live our lives to see other people humble themselves in his presence as well. What's the right thing to do? The right thing to do is to humble ourselves. Verse number 11 of Psalm 2 speaks to this. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Serve the Lord with fear, with reverence, with honor. I have the privilege of serving the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I take seriously the fact that I belong to him. We rejoice and we do so with trembling. Why do we do that? We rejoice with trembling the same way that uh, uh, Moses took off the shoes from his feet because he was on holy ground, right? He's entering into the presence of a holy God and we recognize that. When we recognize who we are and who God is, it humbles us. We don't, we don't have room for pride in our lives. When Isaiah entered into the very throne room of God and he saw the angels going back and forth and they were singing, holy, holy, holy. I mean, if I had been, if that had been me, I'd have been like, you'll never believe what I just saw. Let me tell you what God blessed me with. And he chose me, he chose me to show this wonderful vision to. Now the Bible says that Isaiah's response was woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amidst the people of an unclean lips. When he saw how holy God was and how sinful he was, it didn't give him a superiority complex. It gave him an inferiority complex. And what a wonderful thing it was that when he said to God, woe is me, when he cried out, I'm not worthy, that same God in all his holiness and all his power said, I got to send somebody. Would you like to go? I know you say you're unclean. I know you say you're unfit. I know you say you're not worthy. That's exactly who I'm looking for. Somebody who's willing to humble themselves in my presence and in my sight. The Bible says a broken and a contrite spirit, he will not despise. We acknowledge God's authority and we humble ourselves. And then we trust him. We put our faith in God. Verse number 12, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. That phrase, kiss the son, right? A cultural reference to an acknowledgement of position and authority. And he says, you humble yourself before God and you put your trust in him. Right? There's so much that we could put our trust in. There's so much that we could put our confidence in. But there is one who is worthy of our faith, and his name is Jesus. We ought to put our faith in God. Have faith in God. When Jesus invited his disciples, challenged them to grow, he said, what you need to do is you need to believe. You need to put your trust in me. You need to put your confidence in me. I know that things get crazy, and if, if you're like me, just like the disciples, it was when Jesus told the disciples about forgiveness. He said, you need to forgive. How many times? 70 times seven. A lot. 
And you need to forgive, and you need to forgive like I forgive. No strings attached. You need to forgive. And when Jesus said that to the disciples, they said, increase our faith. Right? Because when Jesus presented them with this radical way that he was calling for them to live, like, I can't do that. I need, I need more faith. When was the last time you prayed that kind of prayer? Increase my faith. Give me more faith. We, we sometimes think of having a need for more faith in a negative way. I must be doing something wrong. I'm not, I'm not trusting God. But the truth is, until you close your eyes in death or are welcomed into the presence of your Savior on that day, you're going to need more faith. You're going to need to grow in your faith. And so like the disciples, we ought to humble ourselves and say, increase our faith. I need more faith. And he said, Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. You can't go wrong when you put your trust in him. So there's hope for us in the middle of chaos. And there's a lot of craziness going on, right? But Jesus said, thou art Peter upon this rock. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, as I was growing up, I would often hear that passage that, listen, I understand the the spirit of this kind of analogy. But it, you hear those verses, right? The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And what's our image, right? There's this church, this mighty fortress that is the church. And all the evil of the world and the demons and the devils are smashing into the gates and trying their best to break it down, right? So if, if, this is your, if this is your image of this passage, I understand that. I, I resonate with that, right? And no matter how much it beat against the walls and beat against the gates... It's not going to go down. But when I read Jesus' words, he says it's the gates of hell that don't prevail against the church. It's not the evil that's on the move in that analogy. It's the church that's on the move. It's the gates of hell that won't withstand the advancing of God's kingdom. My encouragement to you is to have hope in the middle of all this chaos and to maybe ask God to help us to not have so much of a defensive mindset and start thinking a little more offensively, right? Growing up, we would sing the song, and there's nothing wrong with the song. If you know the hymn, great hymn, right? Hold the fort, for I am coming, right? But I don't think God wants us to be hunkering down, waiting for it to be all over. I think his heart for us is that we would be advancing, that we'd be moving forward, that we would not be sitting idle by while the evil of the world, he wants us to be on the move. And so when the Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against the church, the advancing kingdom of God of which you and me are invited to be a part, it's not gonna be slowed down. No matter what this world tries to do, there's nothing that can stop that. Why? Because we have hope in Jesus. We have a living hope because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. Our hope is in Jesus. In the middle of all this craziness that we see around us, our hope is in Jesus.